Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Another gospel. Typically when we hear that, we think of Galatians 1, 6 through 9, or 2 Corinthians 11, and then apply that to some cult like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. But in this case, on this episode, we're going to be talking about another gospel that isn't just simply one of these cults that are easier to identify, but one that is more of a Trojan horse. And we actually have author and apologist Elisa Childers with us today to discuss this other gospel. So we want to welcome to the show Elisa Childers. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You know what? I am beyond excited to have you on the show today. I was actually discussing last night with a brother and sister in Christ that you were going to be coming and interviewing with us. And she was like, wow, I'm so excited because so many of the lies that she exposes I was getting caught up in those when I was a younger Christian, and I think it's really, really important for us to understand some of these things. And I guess before we even get into that, your book, Another Gospel, isn't simply about maybe Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, but it's actually about the progressive Christian churches today. And I'd love for you maybe to just explain a little bit about what the book is and what progressive Christianity really is. Yeah, well, several years ago, I had never even heard the term progressive Christianity, um, but I it, it became relevant to me because I had been through an experience where my faith was really challenged in a progressive church. And so I began to see that phrase kind of pop up everywhere. And I, I went on a journey and spent a couple of years just reading all the progressive books, listening to the podcast, reading the blog posts, just trying to get my head around what is it that characterizes progressive Christianity. And so in the book, I, I sort of chronicle my journey uh, encountering the claims of progressive Christianity. And the conclusion that I come to is uh, kind of like you mentioned, it's it's not just a group of Christians that are changing their mind on some political issues or some socioeconomic issues or some social issues. Um, progressive Christianity teaches an entirely different gospel. It's a different God. It's a different Jesus. It's a different uh, it's a different gospel. And so that's what I try to chronicle in my book uh, regarding the movement of progressive Christianity that identifies itself as quote unquote Christian. But at its core, the fundamental teachings and beliefs are radically different than the core historic doctrines of, of Christianity. Wow. And you know what? I, I think this is really, really important for us to understand and for Christians to see, because I think a lot of times people don't realize how deceptive this may be. And a lot of times it kind of sneaks in or creeps in unnoticed, so to speak. Mm. And now for you, in terms of your testimony, I know that I, you know, I came into apologetics immediately. I came out of agnosticism or atheism. So mm. apologetics were kind of second nature to coming to Christ. But for you, that wasn't always the case. So maybe give a little background on your own upbringing and how you came to, I guess, start becoming an apologist. 
Yeah, and and that is the the radical difference. We have like the opposite stories. So I was born into a Christian family, grew up in church, uh, but I really made that my own from a very early age. I I loved Jesus as a child. I loved the Bible. I knew in my bones that the Bible was the Word of God. Now, if you would have asked me as a kid, and even throughout my much of my adult life, why I believed the Bible was God's Word. I wouldn't have been able to give you an intellectual answer, a reasoned answer. I would have just probably said something like, well, because it is, it's the word of God. I just know it. Or, you know, I would have just assumed if somebody didn't believe that, that the Holy Spirit just hasn't revealed that to them yet. And so my, the intellectual side of my faith was really untested. Uh, Now, I don't want to say that I had a blind faith because it wasn't a blind faith. I had a really robust uh, Christian upbringing with lots of uh, Bible study. I really did know the Word of God, but I just didn't know why I thought it was the Word of God, or I, I couldn't have even told you how the books of the Bible were were you know accumulated into the book we have today and all of that. So it was just something I hadn't given much thought to. And so as an adult, I was, uh, like I sort of alluded to this in my last answer, that I was a part of a progressive church. Now, when we were there, they weren't identifying themselves as a progressive church. This was just a local, non-denominational, evangelical church right here in the Bible Belt. And my husband and I had been attending there for about eight months when the pastor invited me to be a part of what he described as an inner circle type study and discussion group. And he compared it to seminary. He said, if you go through this four-year class, you'll come out on the other side with this seminary level education. That sounded really exciting to me because uh, well, for a lot of reasons. And one, because I hadn't really studied a lot of that intellectual side of my faith very much. And also, I think because of the phase of life I was in, I had a, a new baby. And as any moms know, like that first few months of having a baby are really isolating. And so the idea of going to church and, and getting to stimulate my intellectual mind a little bit sounded really exciting. And so when I got into the class, uh, the pastor had revealed to just this very small group that he was actually agnostic, that he really wasn't sure about what he believed. And so I realize now that he was in a process called deconstruction. I'd never had heard that word before, um, but we're, we're beginning to see that word more and more. But he was basically trying to process his own deconstruction, I think, with this very small group. And so when we would be studying, for example, the subject of the reliability of the Bible, all of the materials that we studied and the the aim of the discussion was from a skeptical bent. So we weren't learning reasons to trust our Bibles. We were learning all the reasons we probably shouldn't trust our Bibles. And so all of these deeply held and cherished beliefs that I'd had since I was a child were sort of put on this chopping block. And again, I hadn't really studied a lot of it. I, in my gut, I knew it wasn't right, but I didn't know how to answer him. Uh, So there came a point after a few months that my husband and I decided to leave the church. Uh, We just didn't want to raise our kids there. And um, it was then that all of the doubts that were planted in the class kind of took root in my own heart and began to grow. And that propelled me into my own pretty significant time of doubt and, and deconstruction. Although, like I said, I didn't know what that word was. I didn't understand what was happening to me, but I just knew that my faith was hanging on by a thread. And so the Lord really used apologetics to help rebuild my faith, which I'm so thankful to him for his faithfulness in that. But 
several years later, after we left the church, the church rebranded itself and it went on to identify itself as a progressive Christian community. And that was the first time I heard that phrase. Um, but then all my friends were sharing blog posts and uh, videos and, and podcasts from people who called themselves progressive Christians. And so when, the, when I first started looking into the progressive Christian movement, like I didn't exactly know what it was, but instinctively I kind of did because it was like, well, that's what was going on in that class. And so that's when I went on this two-year journey to really research the movement and figure out what it is that characterizes progressive Christianity and what they believe. Wow. You know, I I, I, th- I can't imagine going through that process, you know, because, you know, that's someone you trusted. You thought this is, this yeah. is the place I want to go. This is you know, a pastor that obviously loves the Lord. And then all of a sudden, hey, you know, when you're having this Bible study, we're supposed to teach you, you know, just so you know, I'm an agnostic. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah, I can't imagine. Because it was very confusing because he gave such, in what I viewed as biblically based sermons on Sunday morning, I really thought we were the same in what we believed. In fact, mm-hmm. so much to the point that when he said that, and when he was bringing in some of this skeptical material, I really thought in the back of my mind, like, is he just trying to teach us how to spot deception or, you know, like I was so naive about it because I so thought that we believed the, I knew we'd probably disagree on a bunch of, you know, exterior issues, but the core of the gospel, I really thought we were on the same page about that, but we really weren't. Oh, I mean, that's beyond heartbreaking to think. I mean, because that's obviously not in isolation. He's not the only one where that's taking place here, especially in in the Western side of, of things. And so, you know, in 2019, that's the first time I think I watched an interview that you were in. And you mentioned specifically in that interview that you felt that not atheism, but actually progressive Christianity is in fact the most dangerous thing trying to make its way into the church or was already really in the church. And I believe that the fruit of that statement has come true with, I mean, let's just go through the list of the deconstructionists, right? The the ones mm-hmm. that have come out, whether it was John Steingard or whether it was Rhett and Link, you know, the YouTubers, or, you know, most recently Kevin Max, uh, formerly of DC Talk, where they all seem to be coming out. But I, I think there's a, there's a thread there that all seems similar. Do you notice that same thing? Yeah, well, it seems to be a lot of the music business people, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And you have a background in that. (laughs) I do, I do. Yeah, I I definitely think there's a connection. I've been thinking a lot about it, a a definite connection between this TCM industry and this sort of phenomenon of deconstruction. Of course, it hasn't only been uh, people in music. There have been other platformed Christians who have been writers and pastors and even seminary professors. We've seen some deconstruction stories. Um, But, you know, specifically in regard to the CCM thing, I I have been giving this a lot of thought because, you know, the, the, the whole Christian music industry, if you really look at it, throughout the scope of church history. It's just a blip on the radar. I I mean, it's just barely a baby. Like it's barely in its infancy stage when you really think about uh, it it first sort of starting in the early 70s. I mean, it just hasn't been that long. And I remember when I was in the industry 
being very frustrated by a lot of things that had just been sort of accepted as normal. And I'll give you one example. Um, part of what was expected when you when we would do shows is that you would go out and you'd sit behind a table and they would bring people would line up to have you sign, uh, it, you know, give an autograph on a piece of merchandise or something and then take a quick picture with you and then they'd move them along. And I remember really protesting that to managers and people saying, this is wrong. Like, we're Christians. We shouldn't be hurting people through, like, cattle doing signings and stuff. And, you know, I was young, and and I look back and think, man, I wish it, maybe I should have stood up a little stronger on some things. But I was basically told, like, this is what's expected. This is just what you have to do. And if you don't do it, then the people are going to think you're stuck up, and they're going to think that you think you're better than them. And so it was always just this constant tension. But to me, it really felt like we are, we are providing a platform for people to idolize us, to worship us, to put us up on pedestals um, that, A, we don't deserve to be on because in many cases in the Christian music industry, of course, I don't mean this, this applies to everyone, but in many cases, you have kids that grew up in church. Maybe they're Christians, maybe they're not, They, but they speak Christianese. They know the culture. They understand um, the, the Christian world and how to talk to Christians. And they might even think they're Christians, but they don't realize they've never, you know, personally put their trust in Jesus as their savior. And then you have a scenario like that where we take people like that and we put them on a pedestal where they're basically worshipped every night on stage with lights and all of this stuff. And, um, you know, essentially in the in the business side of things, it's it's a money making business. Now, not every most of the artists I know aren't in it for them just to make money. Uh, a lot of artists go into it with this ministry heart. I, I That's what I went into it with was a ministry heart. But you have the powers that be that are motivated by their bottom line. You know, they've got their secular companies that have bought them out to, to please and to, uh, you know, prove why they can keep going. And so you, you put all of those things together and, and then we wonder, and with no accountability either, because when, when people go into the Christian music industry, there's not like this infrastructure of accountability, unless you really want that for yourself and put that in place yourself. So when you put all those factors together, um, and there's just, you know, lots of experiences I had at different churches. It's no wonder that so many people from CCM are going through deconstruction. I, I, I certainly understand it because if that's really the only exposure you've had to Christianity, um, you know, if I hadn't, wouldn't have been given the real gospel as a child, if I wouldn't have really known what real Christians are like, what the real gospel looks like, um, I mean, I, I may not have come back around. I, I, I truly think, think that. Wow, you know, I, I it's such a sad thing to hear that, but it it is a a reality. And you know, um, we actually used to throw an event every year with you know multiple Christian artists, and we've even had we had Hawk Nelson play when John Steinyard was a part of the band, and you know, we it was really sad, you know, reading some of the questions that he had, and it it broke my heart because I'm looking at him and he's like, no one had answers for me, and I'm like well, who were you asking? You know, a lot of these are literally the first questions that when I started teaching a youth group, the first questions that kids had. And I'm like, why was nobody there to answer these questions? And why were you up there, like, as you're talking about on a pedestal, as if you're the one who has the answers and, yeah, and all these yeah. people worshiping, hoping that uh, you're the one that would give them the answers. And, and it is, it is really heartbreaking. And it is all awesome to hear that from somebody who was in the industry I remember one specific artist, and I still I still talk to him every once in so often. I know he loves Jesus. He loves the Lord. And we were talking, and he said, I asked him because he keeps his tours very, very cheap, 
And he always brings on bands he thinks are young and up and coming. And I said, well, how do you do this? You know, it's kind of expensive. You're driving around on this bus all over the country. And, you know, I, I know that's not a lot of money that we're giving you. And he said, you know, because I saw so many artists forget that promotion doesn't come from the East or the West. And he said, I saw so many of these young people come up and say, oh, we're going to be in, in this. And next thing you know, they're out in left field. And he's like, I didn't mm. want that. So I wanted them to see it's supposed to be about ministry, you know, and, and that, mm. that was a real blessing to hear. But regardless, it, it is it is sad. And, you know, the recent, the most recent one was Kevin Max that I saw. And I'm reading his post and reading his song. He actually has an entire song where he talks about the universal Christ. And even in, yeah. I guess, when people were responding to his deconstruction, calling himself an ex-evangelical he had mentioned specifically when someone said, well, you don't believe in Jesus anymore. He's like, oh, that's not true. I, I believe in the universal Christ. And right away, I, you know, I start, mm -hmm. wait a second, we're getting into the Richard Rohr arena here. And I know you've yeah. done a number of stuff on Richard Rohr. So maybe for our audience, you can just give us a little bit of background on who he is and what on earth the universal Christ is. Yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm so thankful to the Lord for how he's led my ministry because there have been several times when I had been sort of studying something and produced a bunch of content on it. And then it kind of became relevant to people after the fact. And in the, the, the whole thing with the universal Christ, it was one of those where I, when I saw what Kevin had said, I mean, the second I saw universal Christ, I was like, oh, I know all about what that is. But a lot of Christians had never heard of that. So they didn't understand, like, is he just mean like, what does he mean by universal Christ? What is that? And so um, I pointed people, and I'll point uh, our listeners and viewers today to a, a almost four-hour podcast I did specifically on the universal Christ. It's on my YouTube channel. I recorded it with an ex-New Age guru named Stephen Bancars, and Stephen uh, was very high up in the New Age world. He he was, I, I think, I mean, it would be safe to say getting close to becoming a millionaire from it, uh, just really high up. And he taught the universal Christ. And then he became a Christian and realized that, uh, you know, that it, that it was not biblical at all. Um, but essentially what the universal Christ is all about is it comes from into in the crit. Now it's very popular in new age. So it's been in the new age world for a long time, but it sort of made its way into the Christian church or more the progressive church through a Franciscan friar named Richard Rohr. And Richard Rohr, I've got several articles on my website about what he teaches. In fact, I, I did. Uh, I'm starting to take seminary classes, and I did my first research paper on his hermeneutics, and so it's all kind of fresh in my mind right now. But essentially, what Richard Rohr teaches is that, um, you know, we tend to look at Jesus as the Christ. But he says, you know, evangelicals tend to look at Jesus like Christ is just his last name. They don't really understand what Christ means. Uh, now, fair enough. Obviously, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. And, and that's who Jesus was, was the Christ. But the universal Christ is a view that's deeply rooted in a, a worldview. It, it's really a view of creation called panentheism. And so people might have heard of pantheism, which is really popular in Eastern mysticism and Hinduism, which would basically say that the universe is God. So this is where all of the, the sort of pagan, um, you know, earth religions and earth cults come from, Mother Earth, that whole, the Gaia, that whole thing is coming from that view. So panentheism is kind of similar 
uh, but not quite as radical as pantheism. So in panentheism, they would teach that God isn't the universe, but God is in the universe in a special sense. And so the way Richard Rohr communicates it is that, of course, you know, Christians, we believe God is everywhere all at the same time because he's spirit. He's not contained by a body. But in panentheism, and according to Richard Rohr, God exists in and as creation. And so that would be the main difference between the orthodox view of, of God's omniscience and his transcendence and imminence and this sort of more new age view of the universal Christ. So, so according to Richard Rohr, the first incarnation is not Jesus. The first incarnation is creation. That's where the uni God became the universe. And so the universe is the body of God, according to Richard Rohr. So what that means, essentially, like that kind of sounds like this kind of new age gobbledygook a little bit, but here's <laughs> how it plays out practically. So what this means practically, according to Rohr, is that everything, all matter, all you, me, the chair I'm sitting in, your dog, the sandwich you had for lunch, that is all the Christ. And so the first incarnation was uh, the creation of the universe. Now, where Jesus plays into all this, according to Rohr, is that Jesus is what Rohr calls a model and exemplar. So in other words, he's a, he's a human who kind of obtained this Christ consciousness. He realized uh, the universal Christ and actualized that inside of himself. And he's, we can do the same thing. You know, we all need to sort of embody this consciousness shift of embracing the universal Christ. And so Richard Rohr even talks in his book about looking into the eyes of his dog and, and seeing the Christ and, and realizing that, you know, that all, in fact, when he talks about uh, you know, we, we talk about people being made in the image of God. And historically speaking, in, in Orthodox Christianity, uh, we're talking about human beings only are this special creation that are made in the image of God. But according to Richard Rohr, all creatures are made in the image of God. And so we see Christ in all of that. And so that's really, so, so what that means though, is that, you know, Rohr rejects the atonement. He says, if you believe that God is going to judge sin and has punishment for sin, he actually says this is a cheap and a toxic view of God. You need some deep inner healing if that's what you believe. And really what you need to do is realize he, he pits true self against false self. You need to live out of your true self. And that's really kind of where salvation is found uh, according to this view of, of universal Christ. And there's some different tweaks that the New Age gives to it. But that's sort of, a, I think, in a nutshell, the way that Richard Rohr communicates it to Christians. Wow. I mean, this stuff is, I mean, it's really serious. And we're, we're talking right now, obviously with Elisa Childers and specifically on Richard Rohr. And it's very interesting. So many of the people that have pushed his stuff. In fact, somebody had sent me a screenshot of Cor It was, yeah, Corey Asbury, who, uh, who wrote the song Reckless uh, Love. Mm -hmm. And when suggesting writers to read specifically he said reading read richard Rohr, and Ooh, yeah wow yeah, i mean you're hearing yeah, well, elisa talk about this and you're i mean you're like she said gobbledygook i think that was the same terminology i used when i saw his view of the trinity uh yeah, that he said that a feminine you know there's feminine qualities in the middle of the yeah. trinity 
Yeah, no, and and you know, like I wouldn't say don't read him because I think you you should oh, always yeah. read people you disagree with and stuff. But recommending him as somebody to follow or glean wisdom from, I would say that you know you'd you'd want to be really leery of that. And that's that I think that's deeply concerning if there's a Christian leader who's suggesting Richard Rohr as a resource. That's that's I think that's really dangerous. No, yeah, Amen. I I could not agree more and. You know, one of the things that we are supposed to do is to test all things and hold fast to that, which is good. And this is something, obviously, we should recognize it, point it out, mark and avoid. That's one of the biggest things. And, you know, I I think I'm so glad that you when you wrote that book specifically on progressive Christianity, that you called it another gospel. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really, really important for people to understand. It is not simply just a difference of opinion. This isn't something that is just, you know, cursory or a secondary issue of doctrine. But I, I think maybe you could talk about why is it that maybe there's a difference between us just having some differences, maybe on the timing of the rapture, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe on uh, the millennial views or so forth. But this is something entirely different. Yeah. So, you know, kind of as we've been alluding to a couple of times in this conversation, there are issues that might be considered second tier issues. And that doesn't mean those issues aren't important. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean we shouldn't debate them. And I have very strong opinions on, you know, things like, um, like you mentioned, eschatology, or maybe, you know, have the gifts of the spirit continued, or what's the role of women in ministry, things like this. Not that those are not important. I think they're very important. Mm-hmm. And I think you can even believe wrong things about those things and be put on a trajectory that's a bad trajectory. But when we're talking about the core essentials of of the, the gospel, um, the way I characterize it is something is a core essential if it's essential for salvation. If rejecting something or accepting something is going to affect your eternal destiny, that's a core essential. And that's where progressive Christians are, are doing all their tweaks is in these core essentials. And so we can think of it like this. Um, if we think of the gospel, again, we're not, we're not even going to bring in the, your view of the millennium or, or stuff like that, but just the core gospel being, you know, this narrative arc that starts with creation. God uh, created the world. He didn't become the world. He created the world and he is, is imminent in it, but he's transcendent from it as well. He's entirely other. He's entirely separate from his creation. Um, course, creating human beings. And then there's this fall where he gives humans a choice. They choose to rebel against him, which introduces sin and death into the world. And that sin nature gets passed down to their offspring and to their offspring and eventually to all of us. And this creates a problem because God is holy. He can't have any unity with sin. And so we are sort in a sense separated from God. And so that's when the rescue plan comes in. Jesus takes the sins of the world upon himself, dies on the cross uh, to to, to offer salvation to all who would believe. And for those who put their trust in him, he's coming again. And there will be a judgment where everybody will go to their eternal destination. And for those who want God, who love him and love being in his presence and under his rule, they will get what they want and get to be with him forever. And for those who reject that, who don't want to be in his presence, they'll get what they want forever in a place called hell. And so, I mean, that's just a broad flyover of the gospel. In progressive Christianity, those points are denied every single one, starting with creation, which we just talked about with the universal Christ. Moving into the fall, largely speaking, progressive Christians deny original sin. They deny that there was this ontological fall that caused sin and death to be introduced into the world and passed down to all humans. They they don't believe that we have this core of uh, sin, like this sinful core. They think, in fact, in progressive circles, it'll often be called original 
goodness or original blessing. And so they believe that that view is totally false to think of yourself as a sinner. Well, of course, if you don't think you're a sinner, then you can th you can see why God requiring the blood sacrifice for his only son would be seen as morally repugnant to somebody who doesn't think they need to be saved. And so in, in progressive circles, the atonement is often referred to with phrases like cosmic child abuse or divine abuse. So that's rejected. And um, the second coming, Jesus coming again in the future is rejected and usually replaced with more metaphorical language. Of course, the resurrection is, uh, is denied, usually speaking. Like it's not so important if we believe Jesus literally rose from the dead. It just matters that, uh, you know, we can learn a lot from this metaphor of resurrection. And, and so the miraculous nature of the Bible, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection, all of that sort of off the table, the future return of Jesus becomes more a metaphor for, you know, every time that you have a experience with Jesus. That's his, that's his second coming. And then, of course, largely speaking, progressive Christians are universalists. They do not believe that anyone will be separated from God for eternity. And so in the end, all will be well. However, they characterize that, whether they call it universal reconciliation or universalism or Christocentric universalism, as some progressives refer to it. Uh, but generally speaking, nobody is going to be separated from God uh, for eternity. And so you can see how this isn't just like some quibbles on some secondary issues. This is this is core. This is fundamental to the movement of progressive Christianity. And it's a denial of the historic gospel on every point. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.